Did you know that students get it free? The Irish Times offers a free digital subscription to all full-time undergraduates. Keep up to date for free with quality journalism and reporting. Claim yours today at irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash student. This story is about the Saudi Investment Fund are behind a breakaway golf league called Live Golf. Now, hang on a second, non-golf fans, and I assume that is lots of you. Before you switch off, this story, as Irish Times sports writer Malachy Clerken was just explaining, is about a breakaway golf league, but it's also a human story about greed, ambition, sports washing and morality. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Conor Pope. Malachy, please continue. The Live Golf series basically set out to pick off players from the PGA Tour, thereby destroying the fabric of golf as we know it at the minute and making themselves a legitimate force on the world stage. And you're about to witness an exhilarating new era in professional golf. Their first tournament was in June 2022. It was 48 players that they had picked off essentially from the PGA Tour and a lot of minor players from the European Tour. They had one really sort of well-known big-name player. Huge breaking news overnight and two-time major winner and former world number one Dustin Johnson will play in golf's first Saudi-backed breakaway event. Really is big news. The only player from, let's say, the top 20 in the world rankings at the time. But increasingly over the months that have passed since, they have grabbed a reasonably good stable of golfers. Louis Ustase and Kevin Na, Taylor Gooch, Sergio Garcia. Ryo Kinoshita, Ian Poulter burned visa. Their biggest capture since has been Cam Smith, who won the British Open or the Open Championship, as they call it this year. The number two ranked golfer in the world, like a legitimately top, top class player. But why would a player like Cam Smith want to leave PGA Golf and join Live Golf? I mean, what's the draw with Live Golf? A lot of people wonder why it's called Live Golf. It's called Live Golf because LIV is, are the Roman numerals for 54. The Live Golf tournaments only play 54 holes. They're only played across three days. Whereas PGA Tour tournaments are played across 72 holes, across four days. And hilarious as it may seem for such a pedestrian sport as golf, literally pedestrian, that is made out to be a selling point, that they only have to play three rounds rather than four. Really? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, It's also made out that they play fewer tournaments in the year, so they're away from their families less. These are all the sort of cockamamie excuses that were given early on for the reasons for leaving the PGA Tour. You know, we want to do less travelling. We want to be away from our families a lot less. 72 holes is a, is a long, long old week. We want we want a bit less of that. Uh, and we want... Uh, but of course, the whole point is that they left for money. Live Golf is supported by, as we say, the Saudi Investment Fund. And the money that you're able to earn on it far, far outranks what the PGA Tour can offer. For instance, Cam Smith won the PGA, the Live Golf event in Chicago last week and his first prize there was $4 million. Um, when you compare that to what he earned for winning the British Open earlier this year, which is arguably the most prestigious prize in golf, certainly 
one of the top two along with the Masters, he earned $2.7 million for winning that. Like, obviously, the, the, the live tournaments wouldn't have anything close to the same level of prestige that the British Open would have. No. So why would somebody take the leap from one tournament or one league to another league for the sake of a million dollars? Now, a million dollars to you, me, is a lot. But to a golfer who might earn 50, 60, 70 million dollars over the course of their career, it's not that much. Well, it's not just a million dollars, Connor. That's the thing. Smith was paid a signing on fee, rumoured to be in the region of $120 million to move. Okay. Okay, so it, like if we could maybe divide it up into, into two camps, the, 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 the pro-live and the anti-live side. Who are the people who are still with the PGA who are vehemently opposed to this development? You've mentioned some of the people who've already signed up to the live tournaments. So who are the people on the other side of the fence? Well, the people on the other side of the fence are the vast majority of the best golfers in the game. I think it's still fair to say that. Um, if you take the world's top 25 golfers, Liv has Cameron Smith and Dustin Johnson. And that's probably about it. Of the people that are left on the PGA Tour, you're still talking about probably 90% of the top 25 golfers in the world. Betrayal is a very strong word. Uh, it's disappointing. I think the, the Rory uh, McIlroy has been the sort of spokesman for the players who have stayed. Those guys have been selfish because it's for personal gain and, and it doesn't help the entire, you know, I think in any industry or any business, we all have to lift each other up and try to make it as best we can. OK, so names of people I would have heard of, like Rory McIlroy, Tiger Woods. Uh, well, well, poor old Tiger is, is, is not really in the top 700 golfers in the world now because... <laughs> but he's a name I've of, heard of, Malachi. He so is it's a name, but he, is, but he is a very important uh, part of all of this. The players who have chosen to go to live, to play there, I... I just don't see how that that move is is positive in the in the long term. Because at a very crucial point in uh, the mid to late summer, he organized a, a meeting of the best players that that had stayed with the PGA Tour, and now it was a players only meeting. Like uh, it's like a cabinet meeting. You have to rely on uh, on people leaking what exactly went on in it. Now Tiger Woods, it should be pointed out was offered, it is rumoured, half a billion dollars by the Saudi Investment Fund to join Liv and turned it down. He is the grandee, he is the, the face, he, he is the reason, of course, that golfers are making any money at all because he changed the sport entirely over the course of his, his playing career. He basically sat the remaining players down and said, you guys have got to stay, you guys have got to fight for your tour, you guys have got to fight for the future of golf. Uh, and that seems to be what's happening. What are golf fans saying? And how do golf fans perceive what's happening? I mean, you're a, you're a big supporter mm. of golf. Would you sit down and watch a live tournament today? No. Uh, no, because uh, for a couple of reasons. And golf fans have not watched it. That's the interesting thing. For a start, they don't have a TV deal. Their tournaments are free on their YouTube channel. And other than the first day, out of pure curiosity, back in June, I haven't watched a minute of it. I don't know anybody in my little golfy circle that has watched a minute of it. Um, it's just not interesting. There's no jeopardy to it. That's the thing. 
because everybody gets paid one way or the other, nobody's in danger of losing their card. It's not interesting to watch. They also have a team aspect to it that is just, it just feels so completely contrived. The live stuff just kind of leaves everybody cold as far as I can tell. Now, look, I'm not representative, possibly. It does have a constituency in the US, depending on who you believe, an absolute minuscule constituency of MAGA-hatted, you know, disruptors as they'd like to see themselves. But the one thing that that is very obvious is the YouTube figures for last week's event in Chicago came out and they were pitiful, like they were absolutely minuscule. Did anybody raise the the issues about the human rights record of Saudi Arabia? Like, was, was that front and centre in the debate or has that been sidelined? Uh, both things are true in that statement, Connor. Uh, at this very, very start, the PGA Tour made a big show of pointing out that the Live Golf was backed by the Saudi Investment Fund and that the Saudi Investment Fund are bad actors. Now, you have to take a lot of that with a pinch of salt. Uh, the PGA Tour obviously felt an existential threat, an actual threat to their business model um, to their future, to their financial future, to their hegemony at the top of the game. And so it suited them, of course, to paint the Saudis in a dark way. The first Live Golf tournament was in London in June 2022. And it was notable. And I think it's where it would have come to a lot of people's attention. This has been incredibly polarizing. Um, Graham McDowell, of course, an Irish golfer, did one of the press conferences, one of the pre-tournament press conferences, and was um, questioned about human rights in Saudi Arabia. Now, all of the golfers were, and a lot of the golfers just played dumb. The likes of Lee Westwood and Ian Poulter just dead batted it. In a generality, is there any way you wouldn't play on a moral basis? If the money was right, is there any way you wouldn't play? I I don't need to answer that question. Sorry? I don't need to answer that question. Lee, do you want to answer it? Would you, I mean, would you have played in apartheid South Africa, for example? Well, you're just asking us to answer a hypothetical question there, which... Well, they're moral questions, answer, aren't they? ...answer a question on that. Graham McDowell, uh, who has always had a really good uh, relationship with the media and would have known a lot of the journalists asking questions has never had never been asked a tricky question in a press conference because you don't in golf you know there's there's generally no tricky questions to ask it's like what club did you use hitting your layup <laughs> to the to the par five you know it's it's, it's there, there's not a lot of contention in golf historically i think we all agree up here take the Khashoggi situation we all agree that that was reprehensible I think he found himself caught in the headlights a little and tried to talk him talk, talk his way out of it. His his basic approach was to say golf is a force for good in the world. Force of good in the world. Um, I just try to be a great role model to kids. I know what the game of golf has taught me. We want to help Saudi Arabia to become a better place. We're proud to help them on that journey uh, using using the game of golf and, and the abilities that we have. To, to help grow the sport and, and uh, take them to where they want to be. At which point the walls kind of came tumbling down for McDowell. He w- 
went kind of viral because it was a wheedling answer. It made no reference really to actual human rights abuses. It was just a bit of a disaster for him all the way around. Okay. That was in June. Over time, the Saudi questions have just kind of fizzled out. I think partly because all the golfers saw what happened to McDowell and therefore just dead batted it. Absolutely from that point on. At any live tournament, any time somebody asked about the Saudis, there was a stock answer and it was, I'm not a politician, I'm a golfer, I'm here to play golf, none of that has anything to do with me. Journalists really stopped asking it because what were you going to ask? What were you really going to achieve by doing it? And so we are at the point now, Connor, where the second part of your question is the status quo. The Saudi human rights abuses side of the live story has just gone away. The only conversations that matter around it are all, you know, the war between PGA Tour and live. But human rights abuses just aren't a factor anymore. Okay. It seems remarkable that to to somebody from the outside that what was front and centre in the debate three or four months ago could be so completely sidelined now. And ultimately, it seems to have turned into a spat between one tour and a rival tour. And do you think it's inevitable then that they'll probably reach some kind of consensus in the months ahead? Or have things become too bitter for that to happen? I wouldn't say that they will come to a consensus in the months ahead. I could see three, four years down the line, possibly, that there's a, a rapprochement, or not even a rapprochement, but that that the weight of money on the live side becomes just too strong to ignore, too strong for the PGA Tour to, you know, hold its nose forever and ignore. But that, those are the sort of conversations that are going on around golf. What is the end game here? And nobody seems to know what, what it might be. Mm. It, you would have to say, if, you're, if you stand back from it, Liv have had a spectacular first year. You know, this is a tour that did not exist five months ago. And now they have absolutely turned the world of golf on its head. Okay. Now, of course, Saudi has been accused of sports washing. In fact, I think the reason the word is so prominent in in our world today is probably because of Saudi. But golf isn't the only sport it's interested in. It's the, the Saudi Investment Fund bought the Newcastle Football Club recently. It's invested in Formula One. It's invested in wrestling. It's invested in boxing. But has it attracted much by way of negative attention for all those other sporting endeavours? Like, it certainly didn't see the rest of the Premier League, for instance, demanding the expulsion of Newcastle. No, it didn't. And had the Saudi Investment League decided to set up its own competing league against the Premier League and got Man United and... Uh, yeah, let's say Man United. Mm. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> somebody with faded glory like Man United. Ah, here. <laughs> <laughs> and let's say... Um, Chelsea and Everton, let's say, to join up a, a rival league. Well, then, of course, there would have been war, you know. The, the, it's a, so it, it's not really a one-on-one com- comparison. The other thing is, is, is that way more people care about football. 
people don't really care about golf. I know, I, I, I know that that saddens somebody like me, but um, it it has a pretty small following in relative terms, and so this was it's a bit of a storm in a teacup compared to a, a genuine global sport, a genuine one of the huge sports. It was almost a surprise that it took Saudi so long to buy a Premier League club because we've seen bad actors buy Premier League clubs all down the years. You know, it was only only this year Roman Abramovich had to sell it because of the sanctions that came in because of the war in Russia. There are very, very few clean hands owning football clubs, certainly in England, uh, very much uh, across Europe. Do Newcastle fans care if... Saudi owns the club as long as the best players are coming in and it's you know competing for the top tournaments the top trophies no they don't um because you look around and their crowds have gone through the roof they're delighted with the way the team is playing it's much more enjoyable experience to be a Newcastle fan now than it has been when it was owned by Mike Ashley over the past decade or more you can tell how little they care in that, like the Newcastle away strip now is is effectively the Saudi national team. It's the white jersey and green shorts, and it's the it, it's effectively a Saudi strip. They don't care. All they want is for for Newcastle to buy the best players, to move up the league, to bring football back to a football mad city, to compete at the top higher echelons of the Premier League, to get into Europe. They don't. There, are, there is, of course, a constituency, a slice of the Newcastle um, fan base that will have felt bad about it or will have decided to boycott, but it's vanishingly small. So does that mean sports washing actually works? And does it mean that Saudi ultimately will be successful in using sport and not just golf or not just football? But all sports it gets involved in to mask the brutality of the regime. Or is there any chance that its involvement in these high profile sports will be counterproductive and draw more attention on the abuses perpetrated by the Saudi state? I think in the initial phase, it can all be said to be a little counterproductive in that people hear now about regime abuses, about draconian prison sentences for Twitter abuses uh, that have happened in Saudi over the past few months. There was a couple of cases of uh, young women who had tweeted very mild criticisms of the regime who were sentenced to 34 years and 45 years in prison, respectively. I don't know if you would hear about that if it wasn't for the sports washing angle, if it wasn't for the fact that Live Golf are around or that they bought Newcastle and therefore... Human Rights Watch find it easier, the, you know, the organisation Human Rights Watch find it easier to get people to write stories about human rights abuses uh, within Saudi. Um, over the longer term, it's very possible that it will work. Over the longer term, the whole idea of Saudi and Prince uh, bin Salman, he has been painted himself as a reformer. He's painted himself as somebody who is modernizing Saudi Arabia. Maybe over the longer term, if that happens hand in hand with the fact that sport is playing a bigger part in that society, 
possibly it could all it could all go hand in hand, but it's still a brutal regime. I don't think that has changed really. I know that you know stuff like women are allowed to drive now you know has changed there over the last few years, but it's still a really brutal regime. It's still a place where you can't be gay. It's still a place where women need male permission to leave the country where they need male permission to marry all that sort of stuff. It's not, it's still a place where they crack down on dissent with an iron fist. Um, I don't know if joining, you know, taking their place among the sporting nations of the world is really going to change that very much. Do you think it's a poor reflection on sports fans all over the world that they're willing to sideline all of those abuses just for the glory of their team or for the glory of their favourite golfer or whatever it might be. I mean, surely this is posing very deep questions of ourselves. To an extent, that's obviously true, yeah. Of course, you know, if you, you know, I'm not personally a Newcastle United fan, so it doesn't affect me, but I know people who are, and I know to some of them, you know, it all feels like very empty calories now. Uh, following their team that they've followed for 30 years. So, you know, you could say that that it reflects badly on them, that they're still, they still look out for the result. But also, you know, Joe Biden went to Saudi Arabia, what, two months ago, two and a half months ago, big fist bump with uh, Prince MBS, came back, you know, telling America that, that he had been given assurances by the Saudis that structural reform is underway and all that sort of stuff. You know, governments do business with Saudi Arabia, businesses do businesses with Saudi Arabia. All of that has a bigger effect on the world than a few golfers knocking a ball around a course outside uh, Chicago, you know. I am always very slow to decide that sports fans need to be the one paragon of virtue when governments and businesses and everything else is very happy to deal with rogue nations like Saudi Arabia. If the world is going to take its lead from sports fans, we're probably not in a great place. We probably should be taking our lead from from the people who are actually in charge and the people who actually make all the money, you know. Malachi Clerken, thanks very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon. We'll be back on Wednesday.